uh, turn to Mark chapter 10. You there? Say amen. amen. All right, we'll get there in just a moment. I want to preach to you a, a message by the title of this, Life's Most Important Question. Life's Most Important Question. There are a lot of important questions in life. So if I'm preaching about the most important one, I better be sure it is. But there are a lot of important questions in life outside of the question I'm going to address today. Such as, will you marry me? It's a pretty important question. Are you pregnant? Make sure you ask that to the right person at the right time in the right location, okay? If you, when in doubt, don't. That's, that's, that's the key. When in doubt, don't. Amen. Just, just pat them on back and say you're praying for them. So if they're pregnant, great, they need prayer. If they're gained weight, they need prayer as well. Is, is it a boy or a girl? It's kind of a fun question to ask. Here's a question we've heard a lot lately. Are you running a fever? Does she have a pulse? Did they accept our offer? Did I pass the test? Here's one your kids ask a lot. Are we there yet? That's important to them. I asked the staff to put their input into this and Eli Gonzalez texts me back and said one of the most important questions that he gets asked is this, would you like to make that meal a large? <laughs> Spoken from the heart of a single guy, right? That's a life-changing question for him on a daily basis. Here's one you don't want to be asked. May I see your license and insurance, please? And here's the most dangerous, very important question based on how you answer, but the most dangerous question you can ever be asked as a husband. Does this dress make me look fat? Be careful how you answer that one. Life is full of important questions, but there's one question more important than any of the questions I mentioned, and that's the question found in Mark 10 and verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This is the most important question of life because it's dealing with where somebody will spend their eternity. Eternal life refers to the other side of life. Right now, we're all in the temporary side of life that will come to an end for all of us at some point by way of death or the return of Jesus Christ. And the moment we die, we enter into what the Bible calls eternity. That is a place where there is no end. So when you enter into eternity, you'll be in your permanent destination. And that'll be one of two places, heaven or hell. The question put before us in this text is how can one inherit eternal life in heaven? I wonder if there's anyone in here, even during a Labor Day weekend, by the way, if you're here, you're here on purpose. God wanted you here. But I wonder if there's anybody in the sound of my voice today in this room that has been considering this question for a long time, but you're still unsure of the answer. You've thought a lot about eternity lately. I mean, how can you not? Everything going on in Afghanistan? Everything going on the last year and a half in our country? You've thought a lot about death. You've thought a lot about the end. And you know you want to go to heaven, but you're not quite sure how you can be confident that you're going there. Or at least you're not sure about what the Bible says about being there. 
Because the truth is, maybe you've heard so many opinions, you've read so many articles, you, you, you've been told so many things about the Bible and Christianity and Jesus and heaven, and you just don't know what to believe. See, I hope you'll listen closely to how Jesus answers this question. Because how Jesus answers the question is really what matters most. Let's begin in verses 13 through 16, a little above where I started. Uh, in verse 17, look at verse 13. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those or got on to those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, suffer or permit the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them and blessed them. There's three thoughts about inheriting eternal life that I want us to learn from verses 13 through verses 31. And here's the first. Those who inherit eternal life do so by demonstrating a childlike dependence on Jesus. Okay, we just read the scene. It's very simple, really quite common in this day. Oftentimes a traveling rabbi, which is what many thought Jesus was, they would take time to stop in a village or a town or a region to bless Children, they would lay hands on a child's head and, and pray God's blessing and, and protection over their life. So Jesus was doing just that. And I can imagine that based on his popularity during this time, there was a pretty long line of kids and parents waiting for, for Jesus to bless them. This could be why the disciples were so adamant about getting the kids out of there. We learned a couple messages ago that the, the disciples didn't have a very good view of children anyway. They, they view children a lot like their culture view children as just the, the lowest rung on society. No significance, the same amount of, of, of significance as a servant of the day. And, and because the disciples weren't real fond of kids, and because they knew Jesus was getting pressed on from every direction, they were adamant about telling the parents to get the kids out of here. Tell them to leave. Jesus needs some space. But as well-meaning as the disciples may have been, Jesus rebuked them for rebuking the children. He said, I want the children to come to me. Don't tell them to go away. They are just as welcome in the kingdom of God as anybody else. Can I stop here and say that I am thankful Jesus loves and accepts and saves children? I am thankful the gospel is accessible to children. I'm thankful that the gospel is simple enough for children to understand and believe and accept in their life. I was a seven-year-old boy when I was saved. I'm glad Jesus received me. My son was a six-year-old boy when he got saved. I'm glad Jesus received him. My wife was a 15-year-old teenage girl when she got saved. I'm glad Jesus receives young people. I read a Gallup survey, survey recently that revealed, watch this, 19 out of 20 people who became Christians did so before the age of 25. 19 out of 20. They say that, that, that at age 25, statistics change drastically. At age 25, 1 in 10,000 will become believers. At 35, 1 in 50,000. At 45, 1 in 200,000. At 55, 1 in 300,000. At 75, 1 in 700,000. I'm thankful for the adults in our church that have gotten saved. I am. You can get saved no matter what your age is. But the point is, based on the survey, and I think based on the heart of Jesus, that you're more likely to get saved when you're a child. 
And what a wake-up call these numbers should be to parents of small children in here today. To Sunday school teacher, to, to grandparents, to children's ministry workers and bus workers and school teachers and coaches and social workers who minister to young people every week. Listen, we should be sensitive to having gospel conversations with children. Why? Because they're at a crucial time in their life to both understand the gospel and willingly receive it. When you share the gospel with children, don't expect them to get it right away. In fact, be worried if they think they do. Taking small bite-sized pieces, very natural, organic conversations around a dinner table, in a, in a classroom, on a bus. But, but let plant seeds of the gospel in your young child's heart very, very early and water that seed and water that seed and water that seed and watch how God can save a little child. It's amazing. Well, after Jesus got done revealing the importance of children in the kingdom of God, he used the attitude of children around him. As an object lesson to teach disciples about how one truly inherits eternal life. Jesus said that one must become like a child in order to enter into the kingdom. Now that's counterintuitive because we usually tell children to grow up. We usually get frustrated when they act their age. We say act more like adults. Stop acting so childish. Yet Jesus is telling adults to start acting more like children. What's he saying exactly? What about a child are we to imitate if we want eternal life? Well, we know it's not their innocence. When our kids turned two, we figured out they weren't innocent. It's not their purity. It's not their sweetness. It's not their cuteness we should imitate. You know what it is? It's their helpless dependence. Think about it. Every child is helpless without their mother. Small children, they can't clothe themselves and bathe themselves and feed themselves and protect themselves and medicate themselves and comfort themselves. They are helplessly dependent upon their parents or other adults to do those things for them. And this is the attitude one must have when they come to Jesus wanting salvation. Listen, they must first realize that they can't save themselves. They can't justify themselves. They can't forgive themselves and redeem themselves. They must be helplessly, and should I say childishly, dependent upon Jesus and Jesus alone for eternal life. One songwriter said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to his cross I cling. No one will inherit eternal life without first being helplessly dependent on Jesus. In contrast, which Mark did so often, he used contrast in his writing. He's going to tell us next about a rich young man who's the very opposite of a helpless, dependent child. We read in verse 17 there, good master, he said, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? We know by studying other passages in the Gospels that this rich young man is extremely wealthy and powerful and self-assured. He went after what he wanted and and when he heard where Jesus was, listen, he didn't come walking. He came running. And when he got there, he didn't waste any time. I can imagine with his chest still heaving for breath. He asked life's most important question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to become part of the kingdom of God? Now you can tell by the way he asked the question that his point of view was wrong. He said, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. He was convinced that he had the ability and the willingness 
and the morality in and of himself to do whatever it took to get heaven, he, to get to heaven. He just needed Jesus to point him the, the right direction. So look how Jesus responded to him in verse 18. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Jesus didn't deny being good. He was the son of God. He was very good. He just challenged this man's superficial notion of goodness. Jesus set the bar for goodness where it belongs, not according to man's standard of goodness, but according to God's standard of goodness. And then because Jesus knew this young man had a misunderstanding about his own morality and goodness related to inheriting eternal life, you know what he did? He pointed him back to Old Testament law. Are you studying with me today? Verse 19, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Jesus said, you, you want eternal life? Well, then go keep the, the last six commandments. Those are the commandments that deal with your relationship to other people. The young man quickly replied in verse 20, I have. I've kept them all from my youth up. And listen, he was telling the truth. He was a moral and upstanding young man, not perfect, but from a child, I believe him. He, he kept these commandments to the T. So what is Jesus getting at when he said, go do these things? Well, verse 21, look. One thing thou lackest, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Watch here, let me explain. Jesus knows that though this young man has been really good at keeping the last six commandments, there's one commandment he's not very good at keeping. And it's the first one. The first commandment says this, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This man's wealth had become his little G, God. And it was standing between him and eternity. And Jesus is telling him that if he wants to inherit eternal life, even as good of a person that he is, he's going to need to be willing to repent of the idol of materialism first. This man's great wealth prevented the helpless, childlike dependence, which Jesus said was necessary for kingdom entrance. And sadly, the young man was unwilling to recognize and repent of his dependence upon money and possessions. Look at verse 22. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. He missed out on eternal life. Because he wasn't willing to have a childlike dependence on Jesus alone. It was Jesus and something. You see, the same thing that Jesus commanded of this young man is the same thing he commands of everyone today who desires eternal life in heaven. He commands for those who come to him for salvation to come first, having put away their idols. A willingness to repent of the things that come between them and God. Possessions or positions or power or a person or a passion. Whatever is standing between you and your willingness to trust in Jesus alone, that must be dealt with before you get saved. Let me ask you today, if you were this young man, would Jesus point to something that you're depending on today more than him for salvation? Maybe it wouldn't be wealth because, frankly, you're not wealthy. But you are good. 
And it could be your own level of morality that, that is standing between you and God. You're depending upon how good of a person you are to get to heaven. I would say this is the most common answer I get when I ask people, do you know for sure that if you're to die today, you go to heaven? They say, I think I, I will. I said, what do you mean? I think I will. They said, well, I'm trying to behave in such a way or, or live my life in such a way that God will let me in. Friend, that, that's not trusting in Jesus alone. That's trusting in yourself, in your own morality. I wonder how many in here might be depending on your baptism. Baptism as a child, which, by the way, probably wasn't even your choice. You probably didn't even know what was going on, if that's what you're trusting in. An infant baptism. I'm not blaming you. You didn't know any better. But there's, there's no evidence, number one, of infant baptism in all of Scripture. And number two, we don't believe that baptism is what takes you to heaven. I wonder if you're relying on that or something like communion or confession or confirmation or something like church attendance. If I just go to church enough and get my act together, then God will, God will accept me and let me back in good with him. Or maybe some of you have grown up in church and frankly, you're, you're depending on your family heritage. You're trusting in your grandpa's God or you're trusting in your dad's God, but he hasn't become your God yet. Maybe some of you know everything up here and you are relying on what you know about the Bible and you're relying on what you know about God and you're relying on, on what you've been taught about Jesus Christ, but it's never traveled down 18 inches into your heart. It's a head knowledge only. There's a lot of smart people that won't go to heaven. In fact, there are people that have memorized a lot of scripture that'll never make it to heaven. Matthew 7, there are many people that said they prophesied in the name of Jesus. And in Jesus' name, cast out demons out of people and did really good things. And then they will hear Jesus say this, depart from me, I never knew you. Because it's not about what you say and it's not about what you do. It's about who you know. See, the only way to inherit eternal life is to demonstrate this childlike, helpless dependence on Jesus. If you can remember back when you were a little child, you needed your mom. You needed your dad. And for us adult children, we still do. We just need them for different things. Like money and food. And the necessities of life like that. Listen, you need Jesus and Jesus alone. Now for some in here, that's going to be very hard to comprehend and even harder to do. I mean, to believe that salvation or eternal life is inherited in Jesus alone just seems super too simple for some people and to be willing to repent of anything in your life that you're trusting more than Jesus might feel impossible to do because you just been taught a different way or just instinctively feel that you've got to do something. Well, that's what Jesus covers next in the text. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around about saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Then he uses an illustration. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? So Jesus talks to his disciples now, uh, not just about those who inherit eternal life will, will do so by demonstrating a childlike dependence on Jesus alone. But number two, 
those who inherit eternal life do so only because of God's divine intervention in their life. Jesus talks to his disciples about how difficult and really how impossible it is for somebody to get to heaven who's not trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. Specifically those that, that, that would have something in their life like wealth that they're leaning on. And so Jesus goes to a creative kind of teaching that he used often. And these short parables or these illustrations, these metaphors, and he, he illustrates uh, that, 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 that like it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle it's impossible for someone to get to heaven outside of Jesus. Now, there have been a lot of speculations about where Jesus draws this illustration from and what it exactly means. Two main ones, some scholars and historians claim that there was this small gate that led into Jerusalem known as the Needle's Eye Gate. Uh, camels could only pass through this gate as, as, as they took the baggage off of their backs. And then as camels crawled through on their knees... And in some regard, I think that interpretation would be accurate because until people are willing to unbaggage themselves or humble themselves or unload themselves of their own dependence or dependence upon stuff other than Jesus, they can't get into heaven either. But I don't know if that's the accurate interpretation because a lot of historians aren't confident that that gate even existed. I happen to believe that Jesus was talking super literal here because Camels could still get through the gate. Jesus is saying it's impossible. Not just difficult, not unlikely. It's impossible for someone to go to heaven without him. Or trusting in other things. In fact, it's as impossible as trying to put the largest animal in that day through the eye of a needle. The smallest imaginable opening that you could have in that day. It's, not, it's just humorous. It's so impossible. And, 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 and so the disciples look at him and, and they're astonished. They're taken back because this is the Jesus that'll save anybody. This is the Jesus that'll accept anybody. This is the Jesus who wants to take all to heaven. He's not willing that any should perish. So why is he saying that it's impossible for some to get saved? Well, that's where Jesus steps in and gives the hope of verse number 27. He said, well, with men, it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. In other words, it is impossible for someone to try to get themselves to heaven by depending on baptism or by depending on their generosity or their benevolence or their family heritage or their good behavior. It is impossible. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's not just unlikely. It's not just difficult. It's absolutely impossible to get to heaven without Jesus until God intervenes in your life. See, that's why God has to step in. You don't come to God on your own terms. You come to God because through the Holy Spirit, he drew you. He sought you out. He caused your life to intersect with the good, glorious gospel. And the Holy Spirit began to work in your life. You aren't saved because you did something. You aren't saved because you got your act together today. You aren't saved because you turned over a new leaf. Listen, friend, you're saved because God divinely intervened in your life and said, I want him where he's at. I just love him too much to leave him that way. See, it makes sense that Jesus said it was impossible because it feels impossible sometimes. Like, like in our area, there's, there's a lot of Catholicism. There's some Mormonism, some Lutheranism. 
I don't think those people are our enemies. But I think their gospel is not right. It is a works-based gospel. Yes, Jesus, they believe in Jesus, but it's Jesus plus A, B, and C. Well, the Bible does not speak of that in Scripture. It's Jesus by way of the cross. And you might look at somebody that has been raised in one of those works-based religions, and you might work with somebody like that. You might have a family member like that, a friend like that, and you might think, man, they'll never trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. They'll never admit like a child that they can't get themselves to heaven. They'll never admit that. Well, I got news for you. With God, they will. How do you know? Because he's done it before. Sitting among us, right back there is Carla Develin, who was working for an eye doctor, raised in Catholicism, wasn't saved. And her eye doctor began to share the gospel with her. I don't know how it all went down. Her testimony is really amazing when you hear her tell it. But she was trusting in baptism. She's trusting in confirmation. She's trusting in sacraments to save her until her doctor gave her the good, glorious news of the gospel. And she trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone. Why? Because God intervened. The Perez family, same exact thing. We picked up little Alex on the bus. Parents went to the Catholic church, raised in the Catholic church. Family's still in the Catholic church to this day. Brought Alex. They eventually came and realized that they could actually understand the Bible here. And they felt something different here than they felt there. And they realized real quick what it was. It was the gospel. God was intervening in their life. And God helped them to realize they can't work their way to heaven. They, they, can't, they can get baptized a hundred times. But if they don't trust in Jesus alone, they're not going to heaven. And they got, say, the Padilla family. Same thing. Boy, I can go on and on and on. It can happen because it's happened before. We could even look at somebody that's wealthy and say, man, there's no way. They, they won't act like a child to get to Jesus. You know why they won't act like a child? Because they're seldom in need. So for them to act helpless seems impossible. They can buy their way out of any situation they get in. How would they get saved? Because God intervenes in their life. Like he did last week. I was at a, at a church, Lancaster Baptist Church. As far as I know, the largest independent Baptist church in the country. Very, very um, effective when it comes to reaching people with the gospel. It's amazing. I was sitting with the pastor, Brother Paul Chapel, and he shared with me his, his latest story of leading someone to Christ. And, 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 it, and it was the, the, the leading Republican candidate to be governor in California. Should the state of California recall Governor Newsom, which they'll find out in about 10 days if they will. His name was Larry Elder. And he, and he invited Larry Elder to church and Larry Elder church, came to church and hear Paul Chapel preach a gospel message out of John chapter three. And then he had him and, and, and his girlfriend come into his office after the service. And you know what Brother Chapel did? He didn't talk politics. He talked gospel. And he said, can I share with you the plan of salvation? And Larry Elder said, sure. And he showed him the gospel. And about 15 minutes later, a very affluent man called upon Christ in childlike dependence. Amen. Trusting in the gospel. Don't look at somebody who trusts in riches and say, God can never get a hold of their heart. God can never say, hey, God can save anybody. But he has to do it. You might look at someone addicted to drugs, alcohol, pain pills, any number of things in their life's an absolute wreck and think in your mind they're way too far gone. They'll never get saved. Yeah, until God intervenes. 
Yeah, don't tell me that when we've had people sitting in these pews this morning that were drug addicts. Like Victor Garcia, who walked right down this aisle several years back like a child. Tattoos all over his face. It's that kind of guy you look at from a distance on a Friday night and say, he'll never humble himself to get saved. And he was crying all the way down. Don't tell me God can't intervene. Ali and Alfredo uh, Amada, who, who, who I led to Christ in the conference room over here several years back. Meth heads. Absolutely a mess. Family had lost hope. Parents had lost hope. People lost hope, couldn't hold down a job. And then they called upon Jesus because God intervened in their life. God can save anybody from anything. But with man alone, it's impossible. Thank goodness for the intervention of God. Yeah, you would think that's a good place to end the story, huh? With men, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. But there's somebody among the 12 disciples that has something to say. You, you know who it is by your chuckle. It's not so saintly, Peter. Um, look at it in verse number 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. Now look up here. You might look at, at that and say, oh, he got it wrong again. He's arrogant again. He's having a, self, a pity party. No, he's not. He's getting it right. He, he's getting it right here. Because in contrast to the rich man's failure to repent of his dependence on money and believe in Jesus alone, watch, Peter asserts that the disciples had done just that. Like children, they left all and been helplessly dependent on Jesus Christ. Peter isn't being prideful. Because Jesus' response affirms that Peter and the disciples represent the antithesis of the rich man's failure. Look at verse number 29. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but that he shall receive an hundredfold. Now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. So if you want to inherit eternal life, you do so only by demonstrating a childlike dependence on Jesus. You do so only because of divine intervention. Here's the last truth. Those who inherit eternal life are promised eternal gain. See, there's no getting around the fact that placing your faith in Jesus alone comes at a personal cost. That's what Jesus said. See, to Jesus' original disciples, they had to give up personal possessions and personal businesses and family relationships, and they had to walk away from the religion they were raised in. To Mark's readers, who would read this much later, they were in Rome. Their turning to Jesus alone came at the cost of persecution from Nero. For someone in here to place their faith in Jesus alone today, it might cost you some relationships. It might cost you some family ties. It might cost you some, some popularity. You may have to repent of some things that you've done your whole life that aren't pleasing to God. And getting saved may feel at first like you're giving up more than you're gaining. But Jesus is making the point here that, 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 that eternal, uh, the eternal gain of placing our faith in Him alone and following Him alone is much greater, a hundred times greater than anything we lose or give up to get saved. There's no greater proof for this than in Luke chapter 16. When Jesus told a story about a rich man 
and a poor man. The rich man lived a comfortable and seemingly satisfying life on earth with the poor man. He had to beg at the city gate every day just to have food to eat. The story says both died, but they went to different locations in eternity. One went to heaven and one went to, went to hell. Guess who went to heaven? Not the rich man. The poor man. Why? Because he was the one that showed childlike dependence on Jesus. It was the rich man who trusted in what he could see and touch and hold on earth that actually ended up burning in a real place called hell. Let me, let, let me read you the story. Verse 22 through 26, put it up there. And it came to pass that the beggar died, was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Watch this, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he's comforted. The poor man's comforted. And thou, the rich man, art tormented. And beside all this, here's the bad news. Between us and you, there's a great goal fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. They can't come give you water. They can't even come Put a drop of water on your tongue to cool you off. They cannot pass to us that would come from thence. The poor man who trusted in Jesus didn't have much on earth, but Jesus said he had everything in eternity. Yet the rich man who refused to trust in Jesus alone, but instead trusted in his riches, had everything on earth that money could buy, but suffered pain and torment in eternity and could not be spared or rescued or relieved or prayed out of it. May I ask you a question? Which one do you want? Eternal life or eternal torment? See, I would rather suffer personal loss on earth for following Jesus and experience greater gain in eternity than to experience temporary gain on earth and suffer eternal loss in hell. If your hesitation for getting saved today is based on what you're struggling to give up now, then you're thinking about the wrong side of eternity. You need to start thinking about the other side of eternity, which is much longer than this side of eternity. The ultimate question of life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to go to heaven when I die? Jesus teaches us that you must demonstrate a childlike dependence on Christ alone, which means this. You must repent of dependence on anything or anybody other than him to get you to heaven. And that's only possible with the help of God. It's only possible when God divinely intervenes in your life to show you that Jesus Christ is indeed the only way to heaven. And by the way, God's divine intervention might be happening right now in your life. God might have had you in this service so that what seemed impossible to those around you would become possible today. This might be the moment 
of your salvation. God might be reaching out to you and say, I want to save you today. You've said no before. Or you haven't understood clearly before. Or you've been unwilling to repent before. But I'm giving you yet another chance. That is God's gracious intervention in your life. So don't delay your response. You can either be like the disciples who forsook all and followed Jesus and were promised eternal gain. Or you can refuse to repent like the rich young man and walk away from church today having taken yet one more step toward eternal loss in hell. And that, my friend, is sad. My prayer is that you'll come to Jesus with the faith and the humility of a child if you need to today. And if you do, he promises to welcome you just like he did those kids. To forgive you. To give you eternal life. You don't have to have your act all together. Kids never have their act together. Jesus says, just come on. All you've got to do is realize you can't do it yourself. And somebody from our church will take you to a room and just show you, not force you, not make you do anything. Show you from the scripture how you can know for sure that you have eternal life in heaven. Why would you walk away sad when you can walk away glad? Makes no sense. I hope today that if there's somebody lost in here, God would save you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Stand to your feet, every head bowed.